We would love for them to be a part of what we have going on at Vine Kids time. Uh, they are headed somewhere back there to the back this time. The mass exodus of children are out this side door here. If you have uh, fifth or sixth or seventh graders as well, we have a great opportunity for them to an age-related gospel Bible teaching and stuff. So we'd love for uh, all of our kids to be a part of that awesome time. Very cool. So we want to take a few minutes and just introduce you to some new things and some old things that we have going on <clears throat> this fall. Our whole goal as a church is not that you would show up on Sunday morning and then you would show back up again next Sunday and next Sunday till the end of time. Like our real goal is that you would be involved with and be in deep connection with community, doing life together. That our, our heartbeat is that you would find a place to be able to share your life or your family's life with other people. And that Sunday morning will be the time that we all gather together to <clears throat> open God's word and to worship and be taught and engage together in corporate worship. But that what happens as we do life together is where sort of the daily activity of our life meets the God that is very present in scripture and invites us to know him in the context of community. The Christian life was not meant to be lived alone. Um, there is evidence throughout day one that community is the picture of life that surrounds following the Lord. And so we want that to be part of who we are. And so we want everybody in our community involved in that picture. And so as a kind of way of launching our fall, we're going to, to open up new opportunities and, and encourage everybody to get involved on all kinds of various levels. And, and so in your chair, um, and I know you're going to need a giant magnifying glass. I'm fully aware. Our graphic designer tried to squeeze it all on one page. And when I say that, I mean me. Um, one page. But you have it. And so at home, when you get in the sunlight and you can get your glasses out or whatever, and you can read it. But it's also all going to be available. It's all available on the website as well. But this little sheet has all this information. I'm going to introduce a few folks to you today. In the back of the room by our little prayer area, there's a table. And on that table, there's more of these cards. There's also sign-up sheets for everything I'm about to mention. And the, really the sign-up is just more to say I'm interested so that we can get in touch with you and, and you can find out how to do that. We'll do that in a couple of waves. One, how you can get involved and serve. And two, how you can get involved in terms of community. So on the back of here are our life groups on the left-hand column. And I'm going to introduce some of those leaders and facilitators just so you can kind of see them all. <clears throat> and we can tell you kind of how they're focused and how they're run so that you can kind of say, hey, I've got nine kids. And so that one's not for me. Um, and you'll be able to know how that works. Um, but if you look at the back, we have several life groups that meet. We actually have about five or six opportunities that meet throughout the week that we would love for you to think about plugging in. Now, if none of these work for you and you're like, hey, I'd love to start a life group or facilitate one, Brandon and I would love to help that happen for you. And so uh, anyway, keep that in the back of your mind. So I want to introduce the, the Fugits and the Dunnigans who are kind of hosting a life group that meets up here every other Sunday. So if you're here, raise your hand, Austin and Heather, there's Austin and are Zach and Leslie here today? Nope. See, they're super committed to church. No, I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. I know I'm giving a hard time. Uh, um, anyway, Austin's down here. He's your answer guy. They meet every other week and they're focused on primarily young families and they meet here at the church and they have childcare available. And so that information's on there, okay? Then we have the, uh, the, the sort of young professionals that are like the Bones and the Tatums and the Pittman or any of y'all here that are kind of hosting and got the Bones up here and the Tatums are helping around here somewhere. And I know that uh, Megan Pittman was here earlier. I saw her. They are focused around really young professional, but anybody's welcome, but they don't have childcare at their place. So if you've got kids, you're going to have to find it on your own. Um, but they meet typically in the village area at the Pittman's house. So that's where they typically are. Um, 
We have a morning group that meets every other Friday that's focused on Vine moms. So if you're a mom that's at home with your kids and you're interested in community, uh, Laura Thrower is kind of heading up that effort. Is she out here someplace? Right back there, standing there with her awesome little baby right back there. And so she's heading up that effort. It's all every other Friday and she'll have information about that. But if you're home and they have childcare and you want to be a part of a, a group of moms that is, that are studying the word together and are interested in doing life together, then they're meeting up here every other Friday. Brandon and Jenny Scott have started a new life group in their home and they're sitting right here in the middle, Brandon and Jenny. They started a new life group in their home that's open to whoever wants to go and they have childcare. They just haven't figured it out yet, which is really a great way to define our church. So they just want you to bring their kids to their house and they'll figure it out as they go, which sounds like a zoo, but uh, they're excited about it. They got all kinds of things going on, um, but they're going to be meeting uh, what they, every, other, every Thursday. They're going to meet at their house. Bring your kids. If you don't have kids, you're still welcome to come. It's open to whoever wants to be there as well. We have a recovery group that meets up here on Thursday nights. They meet at 530. There's no child care, but it's Christ-centered recovery. So if you have any kind of uh, dealings with life's obsessive behaviors, alcohol, drug addiction, or just have that in your family, you don't have to be walking through it yourself. They are a group of people that are committed to walking through recovery um, together as well. And then we have another life group that's kind of being hosted by Gary and Johnny Roberts, wherever they are. I saw them right here in the middle. And that life group is open also to whoever wants to come, single adults, however, there are no kids at their house. Their house is not kid-proof. Um, and so if you've got kids, leave them in the car. Or what, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, you have to take care of your own child care, but they love to have you at their house. Now, that was a whirlwind of information. If you at all are interested in a life group and don't know what to do, and that table in the back, there's a sheet that says, I'm interested. Just put your name down and Brandon and I will reach out to you and we will get you plugged in wherever you need to go. If one of those sounded encouraging to you, all the contact information is on there. So shoot one of those folks an email or come up here and, and shake uh, Brett and Steph's hand or introduce yourself to somebody and just say, hey, we'd like to get plugged in, but we'd love for all of our groups to kind of uh, get plugged in there. Now, I've got some Bible studies that meet also uh, really regularly and they are more, they're kind of, we consider them a life group, but they're more focused on sort of walking through intentionally uh, that picture of sort of Bible study together. We really have three of those. We have the Monday night groups that meet up here that childcare is available. So they come up here at six, the men meet here, the women meet here, um, but they're studying different things and we have childcare. Anybody can come to that. Um, so we'd love for you to be a part of that. We have a whole host of women that are sort of in charge and seeing that from Barbara Bingham to Kathy to Julie to Jenny, they're all kind of over that. The men meet up here at the same time. Uh, Mike Fox is doing primarily our teaching. He and Brandon kind of share that responsibility. But Mike Brewer and Brandon, they'd be happy to answer any questions to you about uh, that Monday night Bible study. We also have a men's Bible study here we mention every week that is led by Tom Portman, who's sitting right back here. Tom leads that. It's open to guys of all age group. It meets at Chartel Cafe. Um, it's just a group that's been going on for years and years, and they just get together and have breakfast and study the word together, and then they all head off to work or wherever they're going for that day. And so all of those are available opportunities. Now, we, if you don't have something on there that you're thinking about, oh, man, I could plug in here, but you want to, we'd love to get that started. Um, this fall, Brandon and I are going to be starting a book club on Thursdays up here where you bring a lunch and we read a book together. And so we've got other things that are going to be happening, which we're excited about. But if you have something going on, you're going, I would love to start a life group. None of those work for me. Come visit with us and let us... Um, kind of direct you. Now, there's a couple other places that we need help. As long as we're launching the fall, this church is run by its people, all right? So the reality is the church is the people. It's the ecclesia, the gathering of people. We do not have a large 
well, anything, um, staff, whatever, people group, it is. And the fact that anything happens right here is a Festivus miracle. And uh, we are excited because the people of this church make it work, which means all the donuts and coffee and hospitality, all the building cleaning, all the things that have to get done to make this thing work, from setting up communion to doing all these things are done because people in this church care about the community. And so it takes all of us. Now, there's a couple of really key areas that we need help on. I don't know if you guys have figured this out yet, but we have 100,000 children that come here. And they are growing, and we are making more all the time. And two weeks ago, we had 51 kids. 51 kids. And our little, that's almost half of what we got in here. 51 kids. Do you know how many volunteers it takes to watch 51 kids? More than one, okay? (laughs) We have a sign-up sheet back there. Uh, Cherry and our Vine Kids team is in desperate need of more volunteers. We have so many babies now that we've had to separate the toddlers from the babies, which are different people groups, by the way. Those are different, okay? You've got a baby that you can hold and the baby that doesn't need to be held but crawls around. And they had to separate all those because taking care of all of them in one room was dangerous. Uh, That's how many kids we have. So we need baby holders, right? We need baby wranglers. We need baby teachers, we need real kid teachers, right? We need older kid teachers. We need all of those things by a lot. So back there on that table is a sheet that says, hey, I'm willing to help with the Vine Kids. It's about a once a month commitment, really. Uh, if we can get a bunch of people to sign up, you serve once a month, you pick an age group, Cherry trains you, and you can go in there and hold, wrangle, or teach babies. Uh, pretty awesome. We also have a need for people that are willing to serve on a hospitality team. Those are people that show up on a Sunday morning and they greet people, and they glad hand the high rollers, and they you know the handshakes and all that kind of stuff, right? And they, they do the things that it takes to be the church, and they set up the coffee, and they put the signs out, and then they forget the signs, and I get them on Monday, and that's just how this thing works, <laughs> right? We need you to help with that. So we need more people on that team. So in the back is the hospitality team, and you sign up, right? And you say, I'll come on a Sunday, and Laura and Phil throw, and Laura's back there, and Phil's over here somewhere right there. They will get you plugged in to how you can come and serve on a Sunday, Um, and we definitely need that. We also have a need for people that are willing to clean our space. So part of the excitement of doing church the way we do it is that we don't have a lot of money left over for things like custodial help. So we've got a whole bunch of people, and they really volunteer well, and they come up here in teams on a Friday night or usually a Saturday morning, and they clean the church. That means they scrub the potties, and they do the floors, and they vacuum the kids' area, and they sterilize. They just do an amazing thing, and they save us almost $1,000 a month by people in our church coming together and just cleaning the space and preparing it to be ready for worship for you on Sunday. And I find that kind of thing incredible because if people in this community are willing to come to say, let's put our money someplace else, let's send it outside here. Let's, let's not spend money on the things that we can do together. and Instead, let's give it away. Um, that's the community that I want to be a part of. And so we have organized cleaning teams that come together and they clean and they just do the stuff that makes the church work. We have a definite need for that. If maybe you can't hold kids or you're not, your Sunday morning schedule is kind of iffy, but you know that once a month you could come up here on a Saturday and take an hour with a group of other five or six people and clean this building, um, we need you. The reality is these are the things that make our community work. They will make our community really different. It's an all-in kind of mentality around here. Like everybody's a part of this so that we can gather here and not only worship, but we can gather here and go from here into the world to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the one and to the city and to the world to carry out our mission to love much and love well. So we really encourage you as we start the fall to think about your involvement level here. And if you want to take it up a notch, if you want to get involved, there are some real ways that we need some real help as we're growing into our identity. And so 
All that information's back there. Phil and Laura are going to be back there. They had a prospect touching. They're going to be back there after worship, answering any of your questions. We'd all be happy to answer any of your questions about life groups or things like that. But find a way to plug your whole heart into this thing, and I promise you it will, it will change your life. Maybe not for the better, but it will change your life. That's for sure. Just kidding. So file that away in your awkward kind of size card place that you can put that and reference it for later. On our new website rollout, um, all that information in its exact form is available on the website. If you go to the website today, the old version's still up. You will see just kind of an old list of our life groups. But starting about Wednesday, and I'll have a big message out in the city that'll let you know when that's up. You'll be able to go to the website and interactively click and, and follow all the life group links and things like that. So all that is done, but we're about to push it. Kind of developers are still holding on. Well, I'm still trying to get it done. So, um, we're there. John, chapter 7, week 29. You know, John's gospel is fascinating to me, mainly because its entire kind of movement forward is getting us to the cross. The majority of John's gospel is actually the last week of the life of Jesus. It's, it's by design, John wrote this gospel, as I tell you each week, to demonstrate to us the deity of Christ, to show us that Jesus was not some traveling rabbi, but that he was in fact God's son. And so all these chapters up until seven have led us to this really crucial place where the tide is turning. So Jesus' ministry is no longer this sort of exciting things on the fringes in the Judean countryside where people are coming to be baptized or learn things or hear this guy teach. It is, it is turning. In fact, so much so that they're now plotting to try and kill Jesus. In the beginning of chapter 7, Jesus learns that in Jerusalem, the leaders and the influencers are plotting to kill him. And so he intentionally stays away from Jerusalem and he hangs around the Galilean countryside doing the things that he does, going around and doing the ministry that he's been doing to stay away from Jerusalem because the tide has turned against him. And he's now beginning to face the wrath of worldly anger. And that worldly anger is going to mount so much that from this point forward, it's going to drive us towards Calvary, to the cross. The tide of John's gospel has turned. The anger of the people has turned. The questions have been heightened. No longer do we have this sort of sense of endearment. We now have this sense of threat. And Jesus' uh, actions from here forward are going to be in kind of direct confrontation with a lot of the religious leaders and influencers. And ultimately, and pretty quickly, we're going to find ourselves in the middle of the last week of Christ, coming up to the single greatest event in all of human history, which is the resurrection of Jesus. Well, John 7 is the culmination of this sort of ministry of Jesus to this point of worldly anger, where all of a sudden the threats of the Pharisees no longer are, we should probably do something, but they're going to try and kill Jesus, right? And that's where we are in chapter 7. And so if you've got your Bible, I want you to open it up. We're going to be in 25 through 44. We have a lot of stuff I did today, and we're going to do communion, exciting stuff. So we're going to motor through some of this stuff pretty quickly to get to one <clears throat> place at the end there in, in verse 37. Um, but if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn there. And as we're doing that, let me remind you really quickly where we are. Uh, Jesus has learned that they're trying to kill him in Jerusalem, and so he intentionally stays away. While he's traveling around the Galilean countryside, his brothers come to him, and they say, hey, listen. You're doing all these miracles, and that's pretty cool, but you should probably not do them here in Galilee because no one's here. 
We're like rural kind of country people and agricultural people. And so you need to go to Jerusalem where all the people are and you need to do your miracles there. And that way people will see you and they'll, they'll think you're a big deal because they've kind of self-appointed them now as maybe his campaign managers because they believe in Jesus, the miracle man, but not the true biblical Jesus. We talked about that two weeks ago. They believed in the Jesus that was coming and had come to reinstate them as a political power, as a nation independent of Roman rule. And so they say, Galilee is too small for you. Go to Jerusalem. And now is the perfect time because it was a time of the Feast of Tabernacles, right? Which is one of the three pilgrimage feasts that the Jews faced every year, the Pentecost and Passover and Tabernacles. And they said, go to Jerusalem during this feast when all the people will be there and your stage and your audience will be huge, right? Well, Jesus says to them, no, you know what? I'm not going to go now. Now is not the right time for me to go you guys go ahead. And the brothers go and they pilgrim, pilgrimage all the way up to Jerusalem. And then Jesus goes after them. After a few days, he goes in secret. And he spends the first part of that festival, that week-long, really an eight-day festival, that week-long festival, he spends the first part just sort of milling around the shadows, I guess. Nobody knows it's him. And he's listening to what people say. And we talked a lot about this two weeks ago. And then Brandon last week explored what happened in the middle of the week when Jesus decides to go to the temple and begin to teach. So about three days into the feast, Jesus goes to the temple courts and he just basically says, it's time for me to teach. And so he unmagic kind of himself and everybody sees that it's him and he begins to teach right there. And it begins a confrontation, which all happens almost immediately about a miracle that he did previous, about how he had healed somebody on the Sabbath. And he gets engaged with the Pharisees on this, this idea of healing. But really at the crux of the issue was who is Jesus and what did he come to do? And we talked about who is Jesus two weeks ago. And we're going to really look at that picture this morning of, well, what is it that Jesus came to do? Because that's what's the forefront of this argument that Jesus has had that Brandon talked about last week and that I'm going to wrap up. This week, And so Jesus is in the middle of that discussion, argument, confrontation with the Pharisees and Jewish influencers and leaders in the temple courts in the middle of the week and one of the greatest and biggest festivals in the entire Jewish calendar where there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of extra people in the city. We're going to pick up right in the middle of that. So before we do that, let's pray um, and then we'll dive into that this morning. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here. I, I know that we had a lot to get through just in terms of what it looks like to do life together, but... Uh, Lord, those are important things because community, I believe, is just ordained by you. It is ordained by you from the beginning of time. Um, Lord, you desire for us not to be kind of solo in our Christian faith. You desire for us to be engaged with people. You desire for us to share hearts, to be vulnerable, to live in that picture of openness and authenticity. Lord, as we open your word today, there's a couple of real questions on the forefront of our mind. And, and, and one of those is, what did you come to do? When you sent Jesus, what was it you were doing? What were you, what were you inviting us into? And, and Jesus himself is going to answer that question in a really powerful way this morning. And so I pray that that speaks to our hearts so that we can understand exactly um, who it is that you are and what you're calling us to, or that it's not just uh, to go and make a difference in the world, but you're calling us and inviting us into something spectacular. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. <clears throat> Whatever that means, however you need to say that, I don't really even know. But just ask the Lord to teach your heart as we open his word. Take a moment and pray for someone around you. We do this every week. We want to be a church. It's in the habit of praying for other people. Believe it or not, everything that unfolds here this morning is not about you. 
Um, it's not about me. It's about the people that we engage and what God is doing in their lives. And so pray for somebody else. Pray that God would move in them, that he would speak to them, even if you don't know their name. Maybe it's your husband or your wife or your friend. Just pray for them specifically. Pray that God would move in them, would, would tenderize their heart. He would speak to them, that he would convict them. He would do whatever it is that God needs to do. Lord, we turn our morning over to you. We ask you to teach us through your word. Lord, we cannot understand truth in scripture apart from you. You are the revealer of all things. So reveal truth to us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to go 25 through 44, but we're going to motor 25 down to about 37. <clears throat> and we're going to spend a few minutes in 37, and then we'll <clears throat> excuse me, celebrate communion together this morning. This is what happens. In verse 25, Jesus is in the middle of teaching this gathered kind of crowd assembling at the outer edges of the temple and the courts, and he's engaging in this conversation, debate, conflict with the Pharisees. All right, and verse 25 picks up in the middle of that. It's the middle of the week of the Festival of Tabernacles, right in the middle of this giant pilgrimage festival. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this man, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because of the time his time had not yet come. Still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, When the Christ comes, will he do more, miracle, more miraculous signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent the temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will go and look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and he said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some people said, Surely this man is a prophet. Others said, He is the Christ. Still others, How can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that Christ will come from David's family, from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. All right, a lot of stuff to motor down to the very end, but here's what's happening. Jesus is engaged with this conversation, confrontation, debate with the Pharisees about a healing on the Sabbath, which is not new. Uh, Jesus has had these conversations and, and interactions before, and he still is. But it all boils down to this question, really, why did Jesus come, right? So he's engaged in this, in the middle of this debate with these leaders and influence and Pharisees, some of the people in Jerusalem, which means some of the kind of common people that were around, started putting two and two together. And they were going, no, wait a minute. Isn't this Jesus, the one that they're trying to kill? Because they all had heard that they were trying to kill Jesus. Isn't this Jesus, the one that they're trying to kill? 
yet he stands here and he's teaching in front of them and they're doing nothing? Does that mean that they, the authorities, have decided that this Jesus is really the Messiah? Right, that's the conversation they're having in their heads. They're going, now wait a minute. They're trying to kill this guy, yet he's here, yet no one's arresting him. They're not killing him. Does that mean that they've decided that he really is the Messiah? And then they kind of go back and they go, we, don't, we know where this guy's from. He's from Galilee. The Messiah, he's, no one's going to know where he's from. And what's happening there is that the people are having this sort, of this sort of deductive reasoning where they're going, wait a minute, they're trying to kill Jesus. This is Jesus. He's standing here teaching. They're not killing him. That means one of two things. One, that they've decided that he's the Messiah, or two, something else is going on. Well, obviously, he hadn't decided that Jesus was the Messiah, right? And the people were having this sort of, he can't be the Messiah because we know where he's from. There was two widely held opinions about where the Messiah would come from. One comes from the Old Testament, which means that he would come from the town of Bethlehem, from David's line, which we see at the end of this passage. The other is that the Messiah would come from an unknown origin. A lot of people believe that they would not actually know where the Messiah came, came from. He would show up uh, unannounced, and no one would really know. But to do that, you had to miss a lot of the Old Testament teaching on where the Messiah would come from, which is why we understand that the Messiah is coming from a Davidic line from the town of Bethlehem. Well, they knew that Jesus was from Galilee. Now, all of you Bible scholars, right, all of you Bible scholars know that Jesus is from Galilee, yet Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and that Jesus' line is actually the line of David, right, that Joseph's line runs all the way up through uh, David. But they didn't all grasp that, and so they were putting these things together going, this can't be the Messiah, yet the authorities seem to think he's the Messiah, right? Because they're misreading the idea that Jesus isn't being captured, right? So Jesus knows what they're thinking, and while he's standing there, he says, while he's still teaching in the temple courts, he cries out, he says, listen, yes, you know me, because they're going, we know where he's from. He's from Galilee. He can't really be the Messiah. And Jesus says, yes, you know me. You know where I'm from, right? I'm not from here, right? I'm from the one who sent me, right? You do not know him, but I know him because he sent me. Jesus goes, yes, you know me. And you know that I'm from Galilee or whether I'm from Galilee or Bethlehem doesn't really matter because I'm not really from either of those places. So you don't really know me because I'm sent from the Father, and if you knew me, you'd know him, but you don't know him. Now this, you have to understand, goes hand in hand with everything Jesus taught in chapter 6. So if you've been here for a while, you'll realize that Jesus was doing a continuation of what he's been doing for the past month, which is really talking about his place of origin, that he is not from an earthly origin, that he was from the Father, that the Father sent Jesus as his son, to redeem humanity, right? That is the picture of John's gospel, that Jesus is not of earthly origin, but that he is in fact divine. And Jesus looks at the people and says, yes, you think you know me, because you think I'm from Galilee, but I'm not from Galilee or from Bethlehem. I'm actually from the Father, and you can't grasp that because you don't know him. Now at this, the leaders, of course, lose their minds because this is the stuff that gets Jesus in so much trouble because he looks at them and he blows up their worldview by saying, you don't know God because if you did, you'd know me. And that infuriated them, right? Because they had prided themselves on knowing God, knowing the law. They were the perfect followers of God. And to accuse him, them or me of not knowing God simply because I don't know you is blasphemy. Because essentially you're saying you and God are one. That if you know me, you know the Father. 
If you know the Father, you know me. But to reject me is to reject God is what Jesus is saying, and the Pharisees lose it. And so they try to seize him, right? They, at this, they try and seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because at this time, his time had not yet come, which is a really cool picture. They tried personally to seize Jesus, means they tried to go and grab him, but they can't. Which wouldn't you have loved to see that? It's not like he like ninjaed or magicianed away. He's still standing there. They just can't grab him because he's God and he won't allow it. His time has not come. And so the Pharisees are, whatever they're doing, they can't seize him. And Jesus just keeps teaching. In fact, he's going to just keep teaching for four more days. And they can't do anything about it because it's time to be seized has not yet come. There will be the perfect time when Jesus gives himself up voluntarily, right? It's really important to know theologically that the world did not overcome God and take him. That Jesus voluntarily offered himself to the crowd. Remember that night that he was betrayed, the night that we're going to celebrate this table, he walks up and he says to his disciples, my time has come, let us go. And they get up and they go to the Mount of Olives. They sing a hymn and they go to the Mount of Olives. And they wait because Jesus voluntarily gives himself up as God, right, voluntarily gives himself up into the hands of humanity. But it is not the hands of humanity that sees Jesus. It's important, and we'll get to it later about why that's so important theologically, but it is. And so the time has not come, and they can't seize Jesus, right? They just can't do it. They try to, but they can't. So they can't seize him, okay? And the crowd, right, is kind of amazed at this. And it says that some put their faith or many put their faith in him, right? Because here are the guards, or not even the guards yet, but the Pharisees trying to seize Jesus and they can't do it. They got all of Jesus teaching and the miracles that he's done and all of that. And some put their faith in him because they say this, when the Christ comes, will he not do more miraculous signs than this man? So they're going basically like, surely we're going to put our faith in this guy because if the, uh, the Messiah, the other one, or if there is another one comes, he can't do more than this. Because they weren't really putting their faith in the true, real, biblical Jesus. We talked about two weeks ago. They're putting their faith in Jesus, the miracle man, right? And they're looking at the scale of miracles that he'd done. They healed the guy on the Sabbath. They'd heard all the other stories. They listened to his teaching. They're watching the Pharisees not be able to physically grab him. And they're going, that's pretty amazing. So if somebody else comes, they're not going to do more than this. Surely we should believe in this guy. Because the crowds believed in Jesus as the miracle maker, much the way his brothers did. And we talked about this two weeks ago. It's the Jesus of our expectations. But they did not believe in a true biblical understanding of Jesus at this point in time. The majority of this crowd loved the miracles, and they thought, no one's going to do more than this. I mean, he's standing there, and they can't even grab him, which would have been really cool to see. Jesus is like, miss me. Miss me again. And again. And again, right? And he's just standing there. So there... The crowd's putting their faith in them, which, of course, just escalates the anger of the Pharisees. They can't seize Jesus. He basically has called himself God. People are putting their faith in him, albeit for the wrong reasons, but they're still putting their faith in him. And so the Pharisees decide that they have to take it up a notch. So the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent the temple guards to arrest him. So the Pharisees go, all right, we can't get you. We're not going to let all these people believe in you. So the chief priests get together, and they send the temple guards, which were armed guards. The temple guards were charged with keeping the artifacts of the temple safe. And in the temple, there were very, very, very valuable artifacts, and so they were armed guards. So the armed guards come out, to seize Jesus with their swords and 
things, right? Whatever they've been armed with to seize Jesus. So not Pharisees can't do it. They send the guards, right? And Jesus speaks to the whole group of people. Look, I'm with you only for a short time, and then I'm going to go to the one who sent me. I'm only here for a little bit, and then I'm going back to the Father. You look for me, but you won't find me because where I'm going, you can't come. So he says, listen, I'm only here for a little bit, and you can't come with me. I'm going to go to the one who sent me, and that's not where you can go. And, of course, the Pharisees thinking on this worldly level going, this guy's crazy. Where's he going to go? Out to the countryside where the Greeks are and teach them? We can find you anywhere. In other words, you are not beyond our ability to find you because they don't understand that Jesus is talking about he's here for a short time and then he's going to hand himself over to be killed and is going to return to the Father and you are not welcome in the presence of the Father apart from the Son. And so Jesus is saying, you can't come, right? You won't find me there because I'm returning to the one who sent me and you don't know him, right? And they're, of course, going, well, he's going to go to the countryside somewhere. And they're, they're lost, right? And so then we jump to verse 37. On the last day, which had been the eighth, maybe the seventh, but most believe the eighth day, there was a huge culmination at the end of the feast in which all the people that had gathered from all the surrounding countryside came together in one massive assembly. All right? And it was like a closing ceremonies of sorts. And they would do a big sacrifice and they would worship, and they would conclude this incredibly joyous celebration. Because the Feast of Tabernacles, the Festival of Booth, was a huge celebratory event about God's protection, provision, and the culmination of the harvest. It was all these great things. They would have this huge thing on the last day. Verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, right, when all the people, not just the people in the temple courts, but everybody, thousands upon thousands, right? Jesus stood in a loud voice. So he stands up in front of this massive crowd. In a loud voice, you almost have to shout this. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Then John says, by this he meant, right, that the Spirit whom those who believed in were later to receive. Um, up, to the time, up to this time, the Spirit had not yet been given, so Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing the words, the people got really confused and divided. Some thought he was a prophet. Some thought he was Christ. But they were confused because they, they thought that, you know, he was from Galilee and the, that Christ was either from an unknown region or from Bethlehem. The people were torn. Verse 44, but they wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. So in the last day, Jesus stands up, and in two sentences, in front of a crowd of thousands upon thousands, he gives this incredibly remarkable, amazing promise, which would have been something spectacular for a Jewish audience to hear, right? That whoever believes in me, essentially, will have streams of living water flowing from within them. Come and drink. Now, in order to really understand that statement and what Jesus is saying, you've got to have a, a pretty good kind of knowledge of, of promises in the Old Testament. Okay, And I'll give you just a quick little rundown of it so we can get to where we want to be today, and then we'll transition into communion. But when Israel wandered in the, in the desert, they were hard people, man. In fact, in Numbers chapter 11, Moses is so fed up with the people of God that he begs God to kill him. He literally comes before God in, in Numbers 11 and has had enough. And he basically says, God, if this is how it's going to be, take my life. And God says, here's what I'm going to do. I want you to assemble 70 elders. 
and I'm going to take a portion of my spirit which I've been given, that I've given to you, and I'm going to put it on all of them, essentially, so that they can help carry the burden, right? So Moses does that because he's fed up with the people, and he's listening to God, and he can't do it, and he wants the Lord to just end his life because these people are making him crazy. And so he assembles, he calls actually 70 elders to come into the area where the tabernacle was. He brings them in there, and the God does just that. He gives a portion of his spirit to them, and they begin to prophesy. They begin to do incredible things that are evidence only that the spirit of God is in you or on you. But there are two guys that don't show up. They stay in camp. A guy by the name of Eldad and a guy by the name of Medad. And I don't know, your dad too, but they were all dads. No, Eldad and Medad, they, were, they didn't come in. They stayed out there in the camp. But the Spirit of the Lord still came upon them. Even though they didn't gather out there by the tabernacle where Moses and the others were, the Spirit of the Lord still came on them and they began to prophesy. And Joshua, Moses' assistant, was furious about it. Because they were supposed to be in there, yet they still got that blessing. And so Joshua goes to Moses and he says, Moses, just make them stop. And Moses says to Joshua, because are you jealous for my sake? I would pray or I want the Spirit of the Lord to be on all of God's people, that they all might prophesy, that they all might have his spirit. That's what Moses says. Now, that cry that Moses says about all of God's people having God's spirit became the rallying cry essentially of a prophet by the name of Joel, who's got a real small book in the Old Testament. But Joel's chapter 2, God makes a promise where he says this. Afterwards, when these things happen, right, my spirit will be upon my people, right? Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will have visions. Essentially saying that a time will come where everybody will have the spirit of the Lord or the Holy Spirit that Moses had longed for. Now, for those of you that were with us in the book of Acts, couple years ago, Acts chapter 2 is a culmination of all those promises. Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit of God, after Jesus has returned and to the Father and his glory has been united with the Father, the Holy Spirit shows up on the day of Pentecost like a fire, tongues of fire resting on each of those men in that room. Every single person from that point on that has faith in Jesus Christ has promised the Holy Spirit. What Martin Luther calls the priesthood of all believers that through Jesus Christ, if we believe in him as our Lord and Savior, we are given the Holy Spirit and we are usable with the Spirit of God for the furthering of the kingdom of God. Which means that as followers of Christ, there's not just one person that has the Holy Spirit that we all have to go to. We have been given the indwelling Holy Spirit in our life that all of God's people through Jesus have spirit. Now, as John says, John calls that streams of living water will flow from them, right? He even tells us what he was talking about. By this, he meant the spirit by whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Because up until that time, the spirit had not yet been given. So he's saying, look, I'm promising you the Holy Spirit hadn't been given yet because Jesus had yet to be crucified and glorified, right? But it's coming. And what Jesus was inviting those people to that day in those two sentences were this. I am offering you salvation in me, and I'm offering you the Holy Spirit of God. To you, not through the Pharisees, not through the temple, but through you, that the Holy Spirit will fill you and dwell in you, which is an unbelievable, incredible promise that began in this redemptive movement of history in which God was drawing his people, which Moses longed for, which Joel proclaimed, which happened in Acts 2, and now is promised through Christ to everybody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. We have the promised Holy Spirit. 
Do you remember the other place that Jesus talks about living water or, or, or water that uh, is full of life? It's John chapter 4, three chapters ago, when he encounters the woman at the, Samarit- the Samaritan woman at the well. Remember? And she basically says, who do you think you are? Because Jesus asks her for a drink, right? And she says, I can't give you a drink. I'm a Samaritan woman. He says, woman, if you knew who it was that asked you for a drink, you would ask me for a drink, and I would give you water that never dried up or living water, essentially. And she says, who do you think you are? Because what she's basically saying is that Jacob dug this well. It's been here for centuries, and it's fed everyone. Do you think you're better than him, that you give us a water in which we will never thirst? But what Jesus and what that woman were talking about were such different things. He was talking about something different. That through him, there was a promise of salvation in the Spirit of God that was coming, in which we would never thirst or long for or be desperate again. Not a physical thirst. Everybody that went to Jacob's well and got a drink would have to come back the next day or the day after that because they would be thirsty again. But everyone who drank from the well of Jesus Christ, from the Holy Spirit, will never thirst and long for again because Jesus is the satisfaction of your soul. When you couple those things together, you begin to realize the invitation that he's giving this crowd, which is, listen to me. For your entire lives, you've had to go different places to find the Spirit of God, whether it be the temple or whether it be through sacrifice. But what I'm offering you is salvation through me that is coming. And it will be like streams of living water that flow from you, not from somewhere else that the Holy Spirit will dwell in you and quench every desire of your life and you will be satisfied in him. And it's the culmination of a promise that God gave to Moses, which was echoed through Joel, which came about and will come about in Acts. Now, the great thing for you and for me is that we don't live looking forward to that day. That day has come. We live in the middle of that truth that as we put our faith and hope in Jesus Christ, we are given the Holy Spirit of God and every single one of us as the priesthood of all believers has been given the task and the call and the beauty of living in the furthering kingdom of God moment. It means that you have access to holy, eternal God. That through Jesus Christ, you have access to holy, eternal God. There is no middle person, no middle something you have to go through, me, priest, whatever. You have access to God because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And this is what Jesus is promising the people, and it would have been revolutionary to them. In fact, it divides them all. They're all sitting there going, maybe he's a prophet, or maybe he's the Christ, or how could he be the Christ, or what does he do? And then the the leader's like, well, either way, let's just kill him. And that is going to lead Jesus to his death, which is ultimately the greatest thing that will ever happen to you, right? And me is that God voluntarily gave himself up so that we might have streams of living water in which we have the abundant promise of life now and the forever promise of life eternal, with the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. You are a new creation, right? Living streams of water, Holy Spirit alive in you. This table, this thing that we celebrate, is the exact beautiful picture of God's kingdom come. It is the picture of what streams of water look like voluntarily when the God of the universe lays his life down so that we might know him and have streams of living water. The promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit, the abundant life here on earth, and the promise of eternal life to come. This is that table. And it's remarkable because on that very night that Jesus gathered with his disciples is the very night that he's going to voluntarily give his life for humanity. 
to give his life so that all who profess faith in him would have eternal life. So he gathers with them on that night. And after giving thanks, he takes this loaf of bread, not this one, but he takes a loaf of bread, right? And he breaks it. And he said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after he took the bread, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you. That as long as we take of this bread and drink of this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. This voluntary lay down of the life of Christ is a picture of God's movement of redemptive history from the moment of creation and before until we draw this breath this moment. It is the promise of streams of living water that the Holy Spirit, sent by the Father and the Son, right, dwells in us, fills us, calls us to live, act, and move, convicts and empowers the believer. But more than anything, it satisfies the eternal longings of our soul. Jesus is all that we need. This morning, we're taking communion by means of intinction, which we do each week. It's a fancy way of saying, as you come down, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and eat it. You're going to turn to your seats. There's no really rhyme or reason why or when you get up. Just deal with the Lord. We encourage you to take your time, spend time with him. This is not a denominational table. This table is open to all those who profess faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. If you have a gluten allergy, we have remedy for that. So, well, during communion. I invite our servers to come forward this morning as we prepare our hearts to worship the Lord through communion together.